and thanks for inviting me to speak here. So I'm going to I'm going to be discussing disorientation and self consciousness, and I'm going to start by reviewing some uh, ongoing debate on self location and self consciousness, and then use the phenomen use this debate to illuminate the phenomenology of disorientation and also use the phenomenology of disorientation to advance our understanding of the connection between self-location and self-consciousness. Uh -huh. so. uh, there's uh, Gareth Evans in his book uh, Varieties of Reference. Uh, is one of the main uh, authors discussing the, the relation between self-location and self-consciousness. He states that self-location is necessary for self-consciousness not just due to the spatiality of the world surrounding the subject, but due to the subject itself being a spatial entity within this world. And then Bermuda takes this point. Uh, he says that it must not be forgotten that a vital role in this is played by the subject's own actions and movement. Appreciating the spatiality of the environment and one's place in it is largely a function of grasping one's possibilities for action within that environment. And here I want to bring some of the empirical literature on orientation and navigation um, and in particular the difference between egocentric and allocentric spatial frames of reference. So egocentric spatial frames of reference are self-reference, meaning they are coded in relation to one's own body so that this mic is in front of me and the screen is to my right and then allocentric are world reference so that I might know the relationship, uh, the spatial relationship between this building and the Manchester uh, Oxford Road uh, station, train station, which are, I think the only two points I know in Manchester. <laughs> so uh, that's like, um, and you, you get these two, as it were, two ways of representing a space almost. And this raises the question of whether these allocentric frames of uh, reference are necessary for self-consciousness in the way that um, um, Bermudez and Evans and many other authors think that self-location is necessary for self-consciousness. And it doesn't seem that this could be the case. And there's a study uh, by Burgess Toll in, in UCL of a patient CF who has an impairment locating objects relative to their environment but not relative to the perceived viewpoint. So this is basically an impairment in using an allocentric frame of reference but not an impairment in using an egocentric frame of reference. So she can locate, she can tell that objects are to her right, to her left, but she cannot imagine the relationship of objects with respect to each other. And this impairment results in severe navigational impediments as one would expect but there are no impediments in all of the performances on a space perception. So her spatial perception, which is what a lot of these people will say is necessary for the self-consciousness, is flawless, uh, despite her lack of capacity for using this allocentric frame of reference. And this kind of brings me to a distinction that I don't think has properly been made in the literature, that there should be two notions of self-location. One minimal notion of self-location, which involves only egocentric frames of reference, and it's an ongoing debate whether this is necessary for self-consciousness or not. Oh, by the way, just a small clarification, I'm talking about consciousness of oneself as self-awareness, not self-consciousness in the way of like being ashamed or thinking about oneself uh, in such a way. And the other one is, could be integrated self-location, 
which will involve the integration of egocentric and allocentric frames of reference through an online system of a spatial representation. And there's quite a lot of empirical literature on how there, are, there, there is such an online system of spatial representation in most of our everyday, uh, everyday life and everyday uh, spatial situations. And it seems, based on uh, patient CF, that this is not necessary for self-consciousness. But nevertheless, it plays an important role in shaping of everyday self-consciousness. It is not the same to have minimal or integrated self-location Having a minimal self-location is a diminished form of self-consciousness in a certain way. And what I will do by studying the phenomenology of disorientation is really clarifying what is the role of these allocentric frames of reference, what is the role of this integrated self-location in shaping our everyday consciousness of the world around us and of ourselves within that world. So I've been collecting um, through semi-structure interviews uh, uh, subjective reports on experiences of disorientation. And as one will expect, you start to get certain uh, common factors, certain things that uh, often come up. And people tell us um, about feelings of anxiety, vulnerability, confusion, diminishment. So the feeling is horrible and stressful, it made me feel vulnerable, uh, I was confused all of the streets seem similar and we kept walking in circles, we took different terms, turns and it feels like I am a tiny speck in all this action that's happening around me and people describe feeling of being left alone, feeling of not being able to make decisions and unable to be independent which are quite strong uh, statements about uh, getting lost and I think most people will have had like maybe not to the same degree, but similar experiences uh, often uh, when getting lost. And I was interested in how, how it, how it uh, emerges in the phenomenology and this anxiety, which is quite diffuse in a way, and it's not, it's not the strongest anxiety there in most of the cases. Uh, for example, happens very often with the feeling of pressure on one's chest. And I found some resonance with uh, some work that's been done in psychopathology about uh, depression by, by Fuchs. Um, that says that during anxiety, there's a, during depression, there's a diffuse anxiety and an overall bodily rigidity so that the external aims and objects, as it were, withdraw from the patient. They are not at the disposal of his body as a matter of course. All this means that the body space shrinks to the nearest environment. So here I want to take this idea of body space reduction because I think it's very fruitful for understanding also the phenomenology of disorientation. And I'm, I'm not claiming that the phenomenology is the same for disorientation and for depression, but just that this particular concept can really help us uh, understand um, all of the things that I've mentioned, like the feelings of diminishment, vulnerability, and helplessness. And of course, the, the interesting thing is that the anxiety comes as a result of the disorientation. It doesn't come before the disorientation. And it brings the question of what is it in the disorientation experience that brings about the anxiety, this uh, body space reduction. And to answer this question, I want to bring a very extreme case of disorientation. So many people will have had the experience of being turned around. You come out of the metro or the train station and you take the wrong turn and what you expected to be in front of you is actually behind you and then there is a kind of switch, like it feels like you are being turned around and you reorient and slowly you go back into, you re regain your bearings. What's interesting is um, for astronauts and cosmonauts when they are in mi microgravity, when they are in space, 
they get the same but with upside down. So this uh, Oman study, crew often experienced a striking illusion that the surrounding walls, ceiling and the floors had somehow exchanged identities. In the first situation, whichever surface was closest to their feet seemed like a generic floor. Surfaces approximately parallel to their body now seem like walls and overhead surfaces were perceived as ceilings. This has a lot to do with the design of these spaceships uh, that they are tubular. They are like a tube and the ceiling looks pretty much the same as the, as the floor and you think you are in a normal position and then suddenly someone is upside down and you re coming towards you and you re realize that the one who is actually upside down is you and you feel switched. And it's much stronger than being turned around, and, but it's like very similar uh, phenomenology but much more intense. Uh, and it causes feelings of anxiety, vulnerability, nausea. A lot of the astronauts actually uh, vomit because of the experience. It's interesting is they eventually get used to it uh, because it happens so often that they start to, have it, to find it even fun with time. So they say, the Oman, Oman says that uh, visual reorientation illusions typically occur spontaneously, but as with figure ground illusions, and this was very interesting for disorientation in general, onset depends on visual attention and is therefore under cognitive control. One astronaut had commented, if you really want the surface to be down, you can just look at it and decide that it is. So this is very similar to these like duck rabbits or necker cubes in which you can use your cognitive control to direct your attention to see the duck or see the rabbit. And there is some influence of your cognitive control on it. And this is the same for whether you see the room as upside down or not. So interesting is this is also true for being turned around, which obviously when you get turned around, people don't usually start playing around with their attention. But if you come out of the metro and you feel disoriented and you just let it stay, then nothing happens. And then you can direct your attention to, uh, to have to, uh, a switch. And what's interesting is that you get a very similar switch to these figure ground illusions. And really what the analogy between the illusions of orientation and figure ground illusions reveals is that just as there is a perceptual instability in figure ground illusions, there is a different type of instability when it comes to disorientation. And this destabilization, this, this what happens is that the online system of a spatial representation fails to integrate egocentric and allocentric frames of reference satisfactorily. And this brings about a destabilization in integrated self-location. So what happens is that you're still able to tell that, you know, the metro station just came from, is behind you, and the road is to your, to your right, and the buildings are to your left. But you fail to integrate the allocentric frame of reference, the much bigger picture, as it were, into your experience of the space around you. Here I want to use uh, Husserl's concept of the horizon of experience to help us understand how this destabilization in integrated self-location results in body space reduction and unfamiliarity. So we've probably seen this many times. Um, so everything that generally appears is an appearing thing only by virtue of being intertwined and permeated with an intentional empty horizon. That is, by virtue of being surrounded by a halo of emptiness with respect to appearance. It is an emptiness that is not a nothingness, but an emptiness to be filled out. It is a determinable indeterminacy. So the idea here is that the allocentric frames of reference present in integrated self-location will be part of this horizon of experience, and they carry with them a set of possibilities. 
like for example I have right now the possibility of going to the train station or even like of going to take a train to the train station and I know where the train station I hope is more more or less um, in ordinary self-location one feels the location of a set of invisible spatial objects hovering somewhere out of sight framing one's experience of space and the idea is because this horizon of experience is a determinable indeterminacy, it can be determined with varying levels of uncertainty or certainty. And this, uh, this integration of the integrated self-location uh, makes the horizon of experience become more uncertain as a result. And here Husserl distinguishes the horizon of well-known worlds, so home worlds, uh, from those of strange or alien worlds. And I'll, read you, I'll let you read the German in your heads because... Um, completely incapable of pronouncing it well. Uh, a phenomenal homeworld that has undergone destabilization in integrated self-location will become unfamiliar or strange in lack of this frame of reference. So here, because the horizon of experience carries with it a given set of possibilities, the stabilization of that horizon results in a reduction of the experience possibilities of the subject. A subject after being turned around doesn't recognize Hotel de Ville. This is based on one of the cases of a subject who in Paris thinks that they are going to Place de la République and they're on one of these big boulevards and they suddenly arrive to Hotel de Ville, which means they've been walking for 10 minutes in the wrong direction. And for a while they actually don't recognize Hotel de Ville, meaning like the major house of Paris. And once they recognize Hotel de Ville, they feel the switch. But the interesting thing is it's not only that uh, the subject who is turned around doesn't recognize Hotel de Ville. Um, so when, when the subject doesn't recognize Hotel de Ville, the subject perceives that the building in front of him can be entered, just like any other building, but not that the inside of Hotel de Ville can be reached by entering that building. And it's not only that, but it becomes a foreign building, it becomes a building in a strange world in which one feels much more diminished, much more vulnerable, and much less welcome to explore unfamiliar buildings. And it's the idea that the destabilization that occurs during this orientation shrinks the subject's possibility space. And this underlies the diminishment, vulnerability, and helplessness associated with uh, body space reduction. And here I'm going to take this and bring it back to bear on this uh, discussion I had introduced before of self-location and self-consciousness. So we have this uh, phenomenal self that undergoes a reduction of its body space and of its possibility space within an unfamiliar environment framed by an uncertain horizon of experience. And when we see the effect that this orientation has on self-consciousness, we can see what the effect of every day of a typical integrated self-location has on self-consciousness. Integrated self-location enriches self-consciousness by contributing to the horizon of experience, providing the phenomenal self with a set of possibilities for both action and perception. So, for example, there are some, some cases of people getting turned around in their bed at night, which simply means that they've actually switched like their, their, the position of their head and their feet, and when they wake up, they feel like their wall is to the left and their little table is to the right. And then suddenly they're gonna like go reach for water and they touch the wall and then they get turned around. Uh, but it's not even just possibility for action. There's even like a perceptual possibility. It's the possibility of turning the light and you feel like you're gonna see something and you see it completely different. And this is 
even plays into like the very common lack of recognition of very familiar buildings. When people get disoriented, they even fail to recognize the city where they've grown up, the part of the city where they've grown up, or uh, the buildings around them. And the idea is that integrated self-location contributes to the full-bodied self-consciousness and to the elaborate sense of self that we experience when we're at home in the world. And I've actually gone super fast through the slides. <laughs> so, lots of question time, I guess.